This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In the wake of the presidential election and various incidents on social media, companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google are making policy changes. For example, Twitter has taken the stance to remove accounts linked to hate speech. Joining us to take a look at what is happening, Jen Goldbeck, director of the Social Intelligence Lab at the University of Maryland, and also Andrea Matwishan. Uh Andrea is uh, a, a Fulbright scholar uh, in uh, cybersecurity, also an affiliate of the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Jen, Andrea, great to have you both back on the show. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, some of the uh, the moves, especially the ones by Twitter. Jen, I'll start with you. Your reaction to what they're trying to do. I am very pleased. We've been talking about this on the show for, I think, a year and a half now, right, that Twitter has a big abuse problem and they haven't been doing anything to fix it. I don't know that this completely solves the problem, but they have taken a few different really aggressive moves this week. Uh, The one that we saw just today is that they've actually suspended the accounts of some members of what we are calling the alt-right, but is basically, you know, neo-Nazis, white supremacist groups. They've removed those people without a lot of explanation, but it comes on the heels of this move to expand people's ability to easily mute things, not just people, but racist words or all kinds of terms that they might not want to see, and to more easily report people who are doing bad things. So it looks like they're taking a first set of steps that are going to have some reasonable impact uh, to reduce this kind of content. Andrea? I agree. So using Twitter is, of course, a contractual privilege. And Twitter, a private company, enters into a contract with each of its users. And so the terms of engagement are dictated by Twitter. And Twitter's policies ban hate speech from its platforms in uh, however it wants to embody those rules in its contract. And so the steps that it's taking at this point in time, it's merely a run-of-the-mill contract enforcement situation that we're seeing playing out. Many people would say, though, as as Jen mentioned, Andrea, that this is this has been long overdue that that they address this uh, question. I, I would ask. Obviously, they may have made some attempts in the past that obviously were were not successful. But but realistically, why haven't they taken a much harder stance on these types of uh, of organizations and speech in, in the last few years? So I think Twitter's leadership has a speech protective stance, even when the speech is unpleasant or problematic. Their default position as a company historically has been toward encouraging free exchange of content. And so uh, this is a shift in their own corporate thinking, uh, I think it's fair to say, with respect to the balance of unfettered information exchange versus uh, creating a more curated and respectful environment on their platform. What do you say, Jen, though, to, to, the, to the people that will bring up the First Amendment? Yeah, um, it's a private company, right? The yeah. First Amendment says the government can't arrest you for 
saying this stuff, but that doesn't mean that Twitter or any other platform has to host it. I think Andrea's exactly right that they have really been a free speech organization from their inception, which is a good thing, but what they've seen is the platform become, in a lot of ways, a cesspool of terrible things from anonymous accounts that have made it, you know, sometimes in a legitimately dangerous place for a lot of users. And it's not only affected the environment for people who use the platform, but the business. And so Twitter as a private company absolutely has a right to say, our business is being affected by the fact that these people are doing really abusive things and we're going to limit it. Uh, There's plenty of platforms uh, that people can go to online and say all kinds of terrible things, and Twitter has just decided that they're not going to be one of them. Then you also have the moves by by Google and Facebook to really aim at uh, uh, these fake news sites, uh, organizations that uh, say that, you know, in a roundabout way that they are a news-gathering organization, yet they are really just trying to push push forth one particular viewpoint. Uh, talk a little bit, Jen, about the, about the moves by those, uh, by those entities. I got to say, this was uh, a surprise and one that I was really impressed with, just like from the creativity of the solution. So we saw, especially during the election, a lot of prominence of these fake news sites. So they would publish sometimes rumors, but a lot of times just straight out falsehoods because they know people would share them. Uh, In general, the sites tended to be anti-Clinton and pro-Trump. Sometimes they plagiarized, sometimes they just made stuff up. Uh, And those articles got shared all over Facebook, and there's a real question now about whether that influenced the election. Twitter, I'm sorry, Facebook and Google have both taken steps to basically not support those anymore. And they've done it in an interesting way. They're not blocking those news sites. They're not blocking the content. They've just said, you can't use our ads on your platform. And most of those sites exist not really for the ideology, but because they can make money by getting people who support that ideology to click and then see the ads. And so they've said, no more Google ads, no more Facebook ads on these fake news sites. And so it's really taken away the main source of income for those sites, which is what drives them to exist in the first place. How, how important does that become in your mind, Andrew? It's certainly a uh, first step at um, being proactive from the perspective of Facebook and Google in not facilitating amplification of information that, as a company, they don't want to endorse and that they view as, in some cases, a security risk, potentially, Uh, The sources of these sites are not uh, reputable news organizations in many cases, but instead they are um, groups of people sitting in other countries who are creating clickbait for purposes other than sharing a viewpoint. They're just trying to trick users into seeing other content that they're also serving up. Uh, and potentially harvesting information off those users or even compromising their browsers and compromising their machines in order to hook them up into a botnet or they may have other nefarious intent. So I think right. for part of the, the, from the perspective of the companies, part of the battle here is also to protect users from invisible security harms in addition to the content question. I think the content question is a secondary one. For the companies, it's really more about um, 
amplifying safe content and not amplifying potentially unsafe content. But uh, isn't that also part of uh, what we saw, part of the concern over in Europe as well, and and why uh, there was uh, a few months ago a a little bit of a joint effort by these companies to address these problems in, in, in Europe? Now, obviously, part of it was the regulatory culture over there as well, too, Andrea. Yes, and, and I think it's um, a slightly different set of contextual uh, surrounding facts because, of course, in the UK and EU, we don't have a robust First Amendment. So the, the legal analysis at least gets the analysis gets more complicated and slightly um, nuanced uh, in geographic terms, depending on where you're sitting. But I think everyone agrees that the goal is to share information for purposes of discussion, not to facilitate Internet criminality or otherwise trick unsuspecting users with provably false information. Now, we may see experimentation with different models, such as uh, peer assessment of the um, accuracy of the information. I'd love to see a group of really creative lawyers and a really creative group of techies get in a room and hammer out if there are collaborative models that um, employ some of what we're seeing in other contexts, whether it's you know a Yelp model or a Reddit-like model. Maybe there are ways to evolve the technologies here to still be respectful of the uh, free speech-centric approach, but to recognize the potential for gaming by uh, content creators who don't have information exchange um, at the heart of their venture. Part of this, uh, I guess, and obviously this is a much different avenue, uh, but I, I think it's worth uh, bringing up in the discussion, is that uh, we talked on, on this show more than a year ago uh, about the impact that social media was having with uh, with ISIS and, and recruiting organizations uh, for terrorism. And obviously that ended up being a, it. It still is discussed as a, you know, as an issue that needs to be uh, needs to be uh, looked at even further. In in some respects, uh, Andrea, this is this is to a degree following the same path, is it not? There are certainly some conceptually overlapping questions uh, to the extent that we're seeing facilitation of criminality and organization by malicious groups. Uh, for example, we just saw recently a bunch of IoT devices connected up into a botnet, and it took down Twitter and a few other sites, but the next time a botnet like that could be pointed at an infrastructure target. So again, if we're seeing these kinds of efforts, not merely uh, with respect to spreading content, but to capture the uh, clicks and attention and computing power of users we have a different set of security questions that we need to engage with. And certainly recruitment in terms of content is is a piece of this, but also the mechanics of what's under the hood of the operations of these sites, how they're grabbing processing power potentially from U.S. machines and uh, in a way that could be leveraged against us subsequently. That's part of this question as well. 
We are joined by Andrea Matuishan and Jen Goldbeck. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the changes that some of the social media companies are looking to make right now. Companies like Twitter uh, blocking uh, what are uh, canceling uh, alt-right uh, Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook making some changes as well. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I guess, Jen, from the, from the business perspective, and, and we've mentioned this with you about Twitter in general, this is, this is not the only issue they have, but certainly right now with the media coverage, it may be the biggest one that they have. I think that's right. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of issues that Twitter faces in its business and being successful and getting user growth. But we saw in the wake of their attempted sale, uh, you know, about a month ago, that there was statements coming out of companies that had considered buying it that they weren't going to do that because of the toxic environment that exists in big part on Twitter. Uh, and then certainly in light of the election and all the kinds of posts that we're showing up there as a result of that. There's a real focus on this kind of abuse and how Twitter is a place where it thrives. And so just for their company image, in addition to the fact that it's really affecting their business and the perception of the value of their business, uh, there couldn't be a better time for them to start really aggressively taking these measures. And my guess is that these have been in process and things that they've been testing and considering internally for a while. And they've just they've picked a really good time to deploy it and you know, my hope, like I said, is that it's going to start having an impact and make it easier for people to at least create for themselves in an environment where they feel comfortable, even if it's not going to weed out all the people posting terrible stuff online. It's interesting. I saw data from an organization that kind of looked at tweets and looked at the ones that were offensive. And it came up with, I guess, you know, of a sample size of like 17 million tweets that they had looked at, like 7.9 million had had some sort of offensive nature to them, uh, you know, obviously it, it's, it's who you follow that, that, or, or who you retweet that ends up being where you will find that. I, I personally don't see that, but again, it, there, there are a lot of entities that are out there on Twitter right now that are, that are not presenting pro- positive messages in any way, shape or form. I think that's right. And, you know, to an extent, you're right. You can control by who you follow a lot of what you see. A lot of the abuse, though, doesn't show up in that way, but rather in people who are mentioning you or coming at you as a result of what you posted. Right. So, uh, you know, I ran into this over the summer. I had some guy tell me I needed to learn how to program Java, which I've known quite well for about a decade, and I <laughs> called him out on it. Um, and my post about that went viral. I mean, I had 20,000 retweets in a couple hours. Uh, which is great. I got a lot of support, and I also just got hundreds and hundreds of trolls coming after me who I didn't follow, but they had seen my tweet show up someplace else and then decided that they had all kinds of things to tell me about how I should behave or where I should go. Uh, and that is what makes it difficult to control this on Twitter because I don't follow those people. Some of them had anonymous accounts. Some of them didn't. Uh, but it was really hard for me to say, you know what, this is not the kind of thing I want to see and stop me from seeing that when it's kind of coming from all different angles. And the really high-profile cases that we've seen, whether it's Leslie Jones or lots of yeah. other people who have felt the need to leave the the platform, that's where it comes from, not from the people they follow or what they curate, but people who decide to come after them because they've spoken when they think they shouldn't or they've said something that the trolls disagree with.
844-942-7866 is the number to join us. We're talking about the impact of social media right now and the changes that some of the companies are making, like Facebook and Twitter and Google as well. 844-942-7866 is the number. Uh, Jane, you mentioned the uh, before the, the ad component to this, and, and that ends up being a, a rather unique piece of, I think, that a lot of consumers don't consider is the fact that there is a monetary element to this that that is in the end it's probably the main way to be able to tackle at least half of the problem i think that's exactly right and you know when i go around and talk to people about this you know is this company doing this is that company doing that my statement is always figure out how they're making money from it because that is ultimately what's driving pretty much everything you see on a large scale online and so you know andrea mentioned this too that there's a lot of companies, a lot of them are not in the U.S., that don't care about the ideology at all that they're posting in their fake news or right. that they're generating on these sites. They just care about making money, and they figured out ways to create clickbait that'll get it. And you're right. So if money is the driver, how do you take the money away from them? It's by reducing the way they can earn money with ads on their sites, even if they're getting a lot of clicks. And... Uh, you know, it's obvious when you think about it. At the same time, I was really impressed when I saw these reports from Google and then Facebook following suit that that's how they were going to cut it off. Because we do tend to think of it like, oh, we should filter that or we should mark it as fake news. We should do something about it. And the fact is, that's going to stop existing if they can't make money on it. So I think it's a, a creative and a great way to use the business to have a good social impact. Andrea, President-elect Trump was was asked about this in a roundabout way in the interview he did with 60 Minutes a few days ago. Uh, having your background, uh, having worked at the FTC, what level does the government get involved in this? Well, in this particular instance, with respect to Twitter and Google, we are still talking about private companies. Yeah. So uh, the, the contractual relationships between providing content and viewing contract is, is still the, the dominant one, as long as uh, they are making no false representations with respect to the products they're selling, um, they are um, not clearly violating uh, our content-based question. Now, uh, what the FTC has been uh, engaging with is the question of whether um, different technology-driven products provide a reasonable level of security. Uh, it's never been expanded to include this kind of content filtration thinking. They really look more at the nuts and bolts of the mechanics of the, the platform or the, the product. And uh, we've seen in the case of uh, Google and Facebook, uh, certainly aggressive investments in security with top-notch security teams. Um, so the mechanics aren't uh, the, the problem in terms of the functionality being um, a vulnerable code base necessarily. Uh, it's really the emergent consequence of use. But one other method that Twitter has been experimenting with for a while now, and it's something that I think could be extrapolated in different ways with some of these other platforms, is something that they borrowed from physical space from last century, the idea of speaker identity being a marker of credibility. And when you are looking at the trustworthiness of the identity of the speaker in terms of providing high-quality, fact-based information, you're not filtering out ideas, you're giving a, 
um, credibility rating in the way that, say, the market does, that this company is a better investment than that company, or this uh, this author had a New York Times bestseller last time. This other author did not. And so if we start to perhaps not only validate identity, but some of these uh, companies may deem certain speakers to be um, a problematic, a hist- have a history of problematic uh, content posting, and so they may get downgraded in their trustworthiness rating, something right. along those lines. Uh, and then users could filter whether they want to engage with people who are low, uh, who only have, you know, one smi- smiley face trust rating versus people who have three smiley face trust rating. <laughs> um, and uh, by filtering through um, the visibility of that content and whether they can engage with you as a user on some of these platforms. Um, there are creative ways like this that um, may be um, convertible into the particular platform's spaces, and this is kind of why I was uh, mentioning that I think it's a great time for a group of really creative lawyers and really creative techies to get in the same room. Underpinning all of this is a concern on the company's part about the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, which gives them a modicum of legal protection for the content that exists on their platforms, as long as they don't veer off too much into editorial function. Right. And that's part of the, the, the challenge here. They're walking a bit of a legal line in their perspective um, to create the, the right kind of environment from their corporate perspective, uh, but also to not run afoul of uh, the extent to which Section 230 of the CDA gives them a buffer of legal protection. There's uh, also, Jen, and uh, we touched on it just a little bit, but I think you expand on it now, is uh, we've talked about Twitter and Facebook, but Google as well. And in terms of the search uh, that that ends up being a factor in in some of these entities, uh, especially the the fake news uh, uh, coming up in in search engines around the the internet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And a lot of the things that Andrea was just describing in terms of trustworthiness are things that can easily be built into Google search results, too. Um, She actually just described basically what my dissertation was about 10 years ago, so I love hearing that as a solution now. Um, But we looked at this idea of can you use these measures of trustworthiness um, to rate basically the content that we're seeing that other people generate online. And the way that Google traditionally does that is they say every time somebody links to your page, it's a vote that you're trustworthy, high-quality content. And that was true for a very long time online, and it's not necessarily true now. And this is constantly a battle that search engines face. They find a way to rank what's good, and people who want to get bad stuff higher up find a way to game the system. And so I think we're at that point now, you're exactly right, where this fake news is becoming more and more prominent because it makes a lot of money for the companies that do it. It's easy for them to get engagement, and they can get the kind of things that search engines look for. They can pay for it, too. And so it seems like that's the next step that Google's very willing to take, is to look at how is that showing up high in their search results and how can they flag it in order to downgrade it. So you really get high-quality 
data for the thing that you're searching for. The unfortunate part about it is it doesn't feel like uh, uh, this is a, a pattern that's going to slow down from you know the the other entities' side. Obviously, uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google can try and and uh, and and handle it as much as they can. But the the parties that are bringing this this data, this uh, fake news forward, are certainly it doesn't feel like going to slow down anytime soon. I think that's exactly right, and that has always been the case, right? You look at, like, who made money online, and in the first decade of the web in the 90s, it was pornography. That was kind of the only way to make money, and we saw porn everywhere in the 90s, right? And they found another way to make money on that that isn't, you know, showing up high in your search results, and so that's kind of gone away. And now what we see are these companies who can make a lot of money either getting you to click on ads or, as Andrea mentioned, harvesting your data, getting access to your computer so they can do much more nefarious things. If they're making money on that, they're going to keep trying to do it. So, yeah, they won't back off. Uh, all these media companies can do as much as they can to block it, and I think that will have a big effect for a while. But it'll be interesting to see when this crosses the line out of just content and into the line of like really legitimate criminal activity where we may see more government intervention stepping in to find ways to stop it from happening. Well, Andrea, I'll let you follow up on that because I'd be interested to see how you, you view this playing out. And could we see something like Jen says, if, if this becomes more criminal activity, that the government does step in at some point? I think the first step is exactly as, as Joe was saying, that there will be an evolution in the private sector response and kind of private ordering solutions. And it's generally, um, at least in my mind, it's good to let the, the market try to solve its own problems for, for a while. Um, and uh, especially with these technology companies, we've seen solutions evolve to address a portion of the problem. Uh, particularly when security is on the table. So uh, something that Google changed historically, they now are more aggressive about protecting users from visiting sites that have certain indicators of being phishing sites or otherwise dangerous to visit. And so it's possible that they will evolve those security-driven models to better engage with these questions of these fake news sites that may indeed, in many cases, be posing a security risk, but there are also indicators of their um, intent not to be communicative, but really more to capture the clicks and, and the attention. For example, many of them, when you click through to the various articles, they have a disproportionately high percentage of dead links. So if a disproportionately high percentage of dead links tends to correlate with a fake site or a dangerous site, uh, that would potentially make sense to filter into the optimizations of these security approaches that are already rolled out inside these companies. And also sites that have a lot of dead links make for a bad user experience. So if the goal is to provide access to content that um, is safe and functional, um, that is another set of, of criteria that companies like Google or Facebook or Twitter can roll into their own internal models for how they want to evolve mm-hmm. their algos, their, their algorithms in addressing some of these, these questions. Um, but this is a fast-moving space. And I think um, uh, 
an overly aggressive governmental response is, is premature at, at this juncture, at least. Great to have you both joining us again. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Jen. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.